Hello, everyone. Welcome to the WARC podcast. My name is Rika Fukundo, and I'm the Asia editor here at WARC Strategy. Today, we're going to be talking about the reopening of China. There are so many different things that we can unpack, but for today, we're going to be focusing on three key questions. The first one is how has the Chinese consumer changed in the last few years, but also what has stayed the same? The second is, what should brands expect as this important cohort starts to travel and open their wallets again? And the third is, even though the context is post-pandemic, there are other factors at play here that are influencing the Chinese consumer. So we'll be talking about some of those other global shifts that marketers need to be mindful of. To help me, I brought in two experts. The first one is Jenny Chan, who's my counterpart here at WARC, the China editor, where she's been leading editorial strategy since 2019. But prior to work, she has more than a decade of business journalism experience across you know, different publications in different parts of the world. We also have here Reno Yue, who is a passionate brand architect, a purpose-driven marketer, and an intentional beginner. He has led marketing and advertising for General Electric China, driving digital transformation in the fashion and luxury industry. He has also led the area brand design and launch of one of the largest commercial developments in Shanghai and head of marketing for Calgary's Olympic Exploration and Bid. Two experts here have both China and global experience because, again, this topic impacts every market in the world. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Rika. All right. Let's first set the scene. This is not the first time that talks of a China recovery has happened. Back in 2021, all eyes were on China for what they called a V-shaped recovery, for one that involves a sharp rise from a sharp decline. So let us talk about how 2023 is different or the same. What are some of the macroeconomic factors that brands must be aware of as they start to plan the rest of the year? And I'd love to have, um, Jenny, what are your thoughts here as you know, covering China for, for work? Yeah, thank you, Rika. I'll say China is 99% open because a visa-free access uh, for 144 hours for foreigners just reinstated uh, at the end of March. And well, yeah, let's set off uh, lay out what has changed between the recovery in 2021 and the recovery in 2023. You see, no, we are not economists, so we just sort of come out with some top-line economic data. We we saw really macro V-shaped recovery in 2021. And 2023 this year, a lot of uh, economists are estimating a, a J-shaped one. And what does that mean? It's not going to be a sharp, sharp rebound. It's going to be a slow, gradual one. A lot of analysts are, are predicting the second half of the year to have some, some kind of more positive indicators and a full recovery, perhaps in 2024. Noting that the audience for, for the work podcast, a lot of them is in, in the U.S., is, is, really, is really noteworthy to point out there are important distinctions between the two post-COVID uh, snapbacks in the U.S. and China. China is likely to be weaker than that of the U.S. And why? One of the key reasons is Chinese are known to be savers rather than spenders. And in this way, because of this main difference, China might not fully replicate the U.S. post-pandemic consumption boom that happened to that country in 2021. But coming back to what we are concerned about marketing, advertising, there are some things about consumerism that doesn't change uh, even after the pandemic. And if we were to sort of zoom in on growth opportunities, 
they really sit in the intersection of disciplines, be it data, innovation, or retail, that the marketer should think about uh, holistically. And I want to start with a couple of examples uh, with tech, uh, China's big tech firms, because tech is, is quite prevalent in every Chinese consumer's lives in China. And in their own return to a quest for growth, uh, the biggest Chinese internet companies, they, they are doing it in these ways. For example, Tencent, um, they've launched a, a social media app targeting online gamers. And ByteDance, they've introduced a medium and long-form video app. Uh, the, as you know, they're known for short-form video. And all these new, new launches reflect their efforts to, to strengthen their grip on their respective uh, strongholds, gaming and video, respectively, after the, the major regulatory crackdown that eased uh, recently. And these are some of the differences on a really macro level. And drilling down to, to advertising, I think one common reality that's facing us, a similar challenge that all brands, whether it's Western brands, China-based brands, they're all facing collectively because of the rise of tech being being involved in advertising. I want to quote uh, this Tsinghua University professor, Xu Ke. So in his book, The, the Invisible Order of the Intelligent Economy, he said that Algorithm-based pushes have become the essential way of information push for most apps. And this is just no longer just the, you know, just the privilege of bike dance. In terms of advertising, advertising is no longer the advertising that it once was. It has transferred from a human game to the operation of systems. So I found, found that really, really interesting and really sort of maybe a scene setter for us to, to think about in the next year ahead, three years ahead, five years ahead, 10 years ahead after China's reopening, because we know that this is for real this time around. Thanks for that, Jenny. I mean, like you said, there are so many things that have happened in the last um, three years. I mean, we have, of course, the macroeconomic factors, but as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, that you know there are other things to take note of as well as the technological change with China's big tech firms, and you know some of the um, the changes that are happening on top of that. So, you know, uh, my next question is for from you. I mean, do you have any other like post pandemic op- observations that you've noticed since China's starting to reopen? Yeah, um, we all read the same reports, right? Uh, Jenny and I, we belong to this uh, digital strategy and insight group. So all members in the group are pretty senior and they're all very resourceful. So there are like hundreds of reports being shared within the group every month. Like 80% of the information are pretty much the same. We talk about value for money is important. We talk about safety and security is important. And we talk about tension between nations. So these are all wonderful background informations to have, but it is what what you choose to do with them. So I'm in the big data business. And, but there are two quotes I hold very dearly to my heart. One is from the Royal Society. I'm not even going to attempt the Latin, but uh, it roughly translates into don't take anyone's word for it, right? The other is actually from Charlie Munger. And he says, people spend too much time calculating, too little time thinking. So if you look at these reports, on one hand, they talk about revenge spending and traveling post-COVID. On the other hand, they talk about people pe- becoming more conservative. They're both true. I think uh, what is even more fundamental for brands and marketers to understand is people are never just one thing. I work out religiously, but I also love to eat. And I sometimes uh, drink a little more than I should. I can see Jenny rolling her eyes at the moment. 
so we, we need to stop making gross generalizations such as Chinese consumers are going to do this. They're going to be practical. They're going to be ostentatious shoppers, right? Uh, they're still local driven, but spending more time and energy on understanding the nuances, sometimes even contradictory Chinese identities, albeit cultural or otherwise. Um, another thing people love to talk about is Guocao, right? National pride. And is it a thing? Of course it's a thing, right? Who among us don't take pride in who we are, where we come from? But it is also important to understand it is not everything, right? It's not Nike and Adidas that get in trouble. Lenin gets the same uh, amount of flack when people think they have lost their ways, right? Their stuff is getting way too expensive. Uh, and also more recently, the public was brutal uh, when one of their designs resembled old Japanese mil military uniform. All, all that ranting is to say that like any other markets, if you start with trying to understand than trying to sell, or if you set out to create outsized value for a specific group rather than being enamored with a phenomena, I think you will be okay. Same thing, you know, just to resonate what Jenny said before on technology, right, on algorithm. If you can engineer humanity into your algorithm, into, and that's a much better way of looking at any market. I mean, you know, Jenny and I are both like in the media business and, you know, we as marketers, you shouldn't be um, just follow like the hype and the trends of like revenge spending and what. Yeah, it might be true, but there are some nuance and some specificity there that, you know, marketers might miss out on. So I'm just going to stay with you a little bit more, Reno. What are some of those pitfalls that you've seen, you know, in your collective experience working with brands trying to enter into the China market? What have been some of those common pitfalls and really trying to understand the Chinese consumer? Uh how much time do you have? <laughs> so, no, no, no. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm known for being a renter. And also brevity has never been one of my virtues. So please feel free to stop me, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna stick to uh, stick with what I know. So I spent uh, a fair amount of time in the luxury industry. And luxury has really had it good, right, for the past 20 years. So we, we sort of talked about revenge shopping or revenge traveling. But... If, you, if you're thinking um, back, the past 20 years has been revenge shopping for the Chinese, right? We did not open that long ago, right? So we're exploring uh, new expressions, whether it's through acquiring luxury items or through international traveling, right? So luxury, the luxury industry has had it good in, in that sense. Um, but I think now it, it's, it's really important for them to relook at the market, right? Uh, instead of being enamored with things like in China for China. I, I love it. Everyone says it in China for China, right? And, uh, but what, what you really look at is like during the Chinese New Year, they hastily come up with some designs with rabbit and dragons, and they're trying to sell. So I think it's really important to understand China better, spend that time. So I've traveled extensively during COVID, uh, during and post-COVID. Uh, I was recently in Dubai. I was recently in North America. I spent a little time in Europe. I almost, especially with destination retail, I almost can feel the love and hate for Chinese consumers, right? In one hand, they need the Chinese consumers. On the other hand, there's that certain disdain. I, I don't know where that came from. Even from uh, working within the industry, I noticed a little bit of that as well. So going back to my original point is that if we spend more time to understand the diversity 
spend you know less time making generalizations, spend more time thinking about what outside value we can create, particularly in the luxury industry, because a lot of that is perceived value. So one of the things that I love, uh, which came from, I think, Dr. Clay Christensen, which is the job-to-be-done concept. So the, the basic idea is that people pull products and, and the services into their lives to solve a problem, right? So it's, it's even more intriguing in the luxury industry to understand what problem they're solving, right? So everyone is using the product and service differently. So when it comes to technology, what does it mean to be virtually signaling? How can we make the experience better for Chinese travelers? So um, feel free to stop me, but I'm just going to go on a tangent here because I have noticed, I spend my life in, living in hotels. I think this time I really have noticed sort of the, the gap between Asia and North America, even Europe, right? I think the hotel industry in general are very ill-equipped in um, serving Chinese consumers, right? The, the rooms are smaller, the buildings are older, their lounge experience are not nearly the same, right? So a lot of the, the I think a lot of Chinese uh, consumers would rather go with Airbnb than with the hotel industry. Same thing with destination retail, right? How can we create that experience? How can we genuinely care? I think those are the things that will be very different in the coming years. I think we'll talk a little bit later on about the, you know, talk about luxury as well as the travel um, uh, category. But I, before we go into that, I want to pick up on one of the things that you said, which is this idea of being more specific in how you communicate and how you connect and convert with Chinese customers. That need for specificity has existed even before the pandemic. But do you think that the way that things are going now, the, the need for it has become a lot more important? Let me uh, sort of backtrack a little bit. I'm a true fan of Kevin Kelly's article, 1,000 True Fans, pun very much intended. So um, I, I know originally it was based on the idea that artists, musicians, and creators can build a sustainable career by cultivating a small but dedicated fan base, right? That's willing to support them financially. That's, that's where the, the concept came from. But I think, how, however, in recent history, it has evolved uh, to be the concept of minimum viable audience, which was popularized by Seth Golden. Right. So the idea is to focus on a specific niche rather than trying to appeal to everyone. So I truly believe it doesn't matter how large the industry is, there's always a sweet spot between serving a specific audience and generating revenue or engagement to make the business viable. Right? So the, the key is, number one, trial and error. Number two is focusing on serving the needs of a specific audience rather and so the courage of being specific is very important. Going back to the sort of the first example with the luxury industry, the psychographic of, of uh, luxury is so diverse, right? It's so different. It's really difficult to sort of generalize even uh, using generation, right? Even using income, even using uh, the, the traditional criteria that we, we do, right? And also another thing about being specific is that um, you also create a support uh, base that would come out and defend you if you make a silly mistake, like what Leaning did, right? Because they understand you're out there to create outsized value for them. So when, the, you know, when it's time or when you're being attacked unfairly in public, they will come out and support you. 
So I think that's that's why it's important to be specific. Is like, and also it's important to say we're not for everybody. I know we love to say we're 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 for everybody. I think it's very important, even for the some of the largest industry out there. It's important to say we're not we're not for everybody. So that means that you're you're really getting in touch with the nuances of who your audiences are, rather than this is just Chinese or this is our certain age group or they're they're sort of this is about national pride or this is about a specific holiday. It's getting in touch with the humanity of that specific group. I'm not sure if I'm being I'm not sure if I'm being clear. No, no, you 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 are、um, being clear, and I think that's a good segue to kind of、um, the next thing I want to talk about, which is you know. Really deep diving into specific cohorts that a lot of brands are looking towards, specifically the Chinese luxury consumer. I mean, you've talked a little bit about this, Rena, but I'd love to hear from Jenny. How has the pandemic influenced Chinese behaviors and attitudes towards luxury? Are there any more specific attitudes and behaviors that you're seeing in the market as borders open? I I actually really agree with Reno about like the way. Traditional ways you segment a luxury consumer. I mean, they they are there. We can go go down a rabbit hole and talk about high net worth individuals and their their habits and all that. But but actually, um, those has been around since pre pandemic, and they actually haven't haven't changed much. I think what I want to point out is, uh, the luxury as a concept. I mean, there are two ways that I look at it. Uh. The concept of luxury in China. One is obviously luxury as a safe haven of investment,、uh, and then second is luxury having luxury the luxury of having the freedom of choice as as a concept. Whether it's about establishing social status,、uh, whether it's about the having a lot of options to to choose to to spend your your money and time. Social economically, after the, the the pandemic in China, people now have a very different reaction to to consumption in general. So, I'll leave all of, all the luxury talk to Torino because he actually served a very big luxury group. But I I think I want to use a slightly extreme example to illustrate the freedom of choice being the new luxury, if I may. It's all very practical kind of stuff because you know it's all、uh, stuff I've been writing about recently. So, for example, China's housing problems—they、um, are so this big elephant in the room that you can't ignore. They—they—they they, they, they do affect consumption.、Um, China's housing market's difficulties—they are quite well documented. There's a liquidity crisis among developers.、Um, they have、uh, buyers threatening to stop mortgage payments because. The pre-sold apartments—they were not not done. There's ever grand crisis and all that, and we have like banks offering mortgages that sort of stretch across generations. That is also <laughs> quite something. Going back to say a very very mass market brand,、uh, KFC, Yum Yum China. Yum China CEO recently in a earnings call, Q1 earnings call,、uh, she said she believed that price points is much more crucial than ever in the fast food sector. Why? Why is that so? Because value for money is becoming a more and more important theme. The is a little bit ironic. She said that the young people in the first tier cities of Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen actually have tighter budgets than their peers in the lower tier cities because of housing prices. A KFC meal in China costs about thirty kuai, thirty Chinese yuan. 
But the implication of this little story is that the suggestion that housing prices are having an impact on the sale of this 30 yuan KFC fried chicken meals could be replicated across other categories. And, and tying it back to the concept of uh, freedom of choice being the new luxury. So over here, this is a slightly, slightly avant-garde extreme example. It's, it's clearly very impacted. And we're not, we're not talking about the usual uh, luxury goods, uh, LVMH, Gucci, that kind of stuff. They, 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 they have a totally different behavioral uh, mindset and motivators behind that. But this example, I want to use it to illustrate the, the impact on freedom of choice. And, and overall, just consumer psychographics are different now. That's super fascinating, Jenny, because we're talking about luxury, but then you're talking about value for money, which kind of feels kind of, you know, paradoxical or, uh, to the notion of, of luxury. But, you know, I think what you're saying is that, again, there are all these other factors in play, depends on the city, depends on the demographic. And so really understanding that specific cohort. So, Reno, you're the luxury expert here. I'm going to bring in a term that you used earlier, which is the job to be done. So can you give some examples of, you know, some jobs to be done, emerging jobs to be done for marketers when trying to reach the luxury Chinese consumer? Yeah, but uh, first of all, I just want to resonate what uh, Jenny just said um, in terms of luxury as a concept, right? So uh, freedom to choose. It's amazing that she can just summarize my 20 minutes of rant into one sentence and it's so succinct and beautiful. So I'm just going to write on her to you know, coattail on that. So freedom to choose really is a luxury, right? Particularly after the lockdown, after the pandemic, right? I, I know it's cliche to say that, but if you, um, for a lot of the Chinese generation, and they had never experienced this, so all of a sudden, they're confined in their apartment for three months or for two months, however long that is. And they realize the ability to make choices at a certain level becomes so important. So normally, traditionally, when we look at the Maslow hierarchy of needs, you look at safety and security at the very bottom, right? I think people really need to think about how they can engineer that into sort of a more, uh, the needs that are, are, are sort of on the top of that pyramid. Right. What does that mean in terms of traveling industry? Do you have really good cancellation policies? Right. That's that's very important. During COVID, you know, travel was a thing. I like I said, I traveled six times in and out of China in the last three years. And I was I was quarantined four times. The longest time was 21 days. It really gives you perspective. Right. On the, on, on things, on, on the freedom to choose or make that decision decision. But I was lucky enough that I could make that decision to travel. So going back to uh, job to be done. But I, I, I want to sort of double click on one thing I wanted to say earlier, is that um, I think marketers really need to look at the fundamentals. We're very enamored with phenomenon trends and tactical ex executions. And sometimes, and myself included, um, forget about the fundamentals of what we do, right? So there's a simple audit that I do when, whenever I take on a project, or just periodically keeping myself honest, right? So there are three or four basic questions. One is why do we exist, right? That actually folds into the job to be done, right? Why do we exist? And uh, if you cannot answer that question as a brand, you already failed out of the door, right? Two is how will we be missed, right? So who's gonna miss us when we're gone? I think that comes to being specific. 
right? Who are we serving? Who's going to miss us when we're gone? And uh, are we creating outsized value for them? You know, can we be replaced? So in, in that sense, I think when we dial to the, the fundamentals, it's just easier, you know, for the luxuries to look at their service offerings or the concept or their narratives. Um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, ChatGPT. You know, you can't walk a, around the block without tripping over ChatGPT three times in a conversation. Um, uh, you know, somehow people are not really not look at, you know, tokens anymore. They're not really looking at Web3s anymore. But if you, if you think about it uh, in terms of luxury industry, I do think actually NFT works in the luxury industry, right? If you think about, and this is probably a bad example, but I'm just sort of thinking off the top of my head, is that Louis Vuitton has a, a token that's worth a million dollars. And it, it'll, it'll give you access to their fashion week. It'll give you access to their new product. And if, if you give you this privilege, is it worth a million dollars? On top of which, and then you can use that as virtual signaling, right? I'm not talking about ostentation. I'm not talking about showing off. I'm talking about meeting a actual physical, tangible need while giving them the sort of ability to uh, working that into their social media platform as well, right? So that's a very, very different need. What I'm hearing from you, Arino, is kind of, it's like a two-part, right? There's the changing meaning of luxury, you know, uh, freedom, as Jenny eloquently pointed out, but then you still can't forget to root it in an actual need. And I think if you get both of those right, that can be quite powerful. All right, let's move on to the last section. So when I started this podcast, you know, I said that the pandemic was one of the factors influencing the Chinese consumer, but it's not the only one. Another one that's in our radar is deglobalization. So to start with, for our audiences who may not be familiar with the term, can you define what this is? I mean, beyond, you know, the issues of geopolitics, tell us why this matters for marketers and brands. And I'd love to hear Reno for this one. So globalization is a fancy term, but basically it is the reduction of interconnectedness or interdependence among nations in terms of trade, finance, and migration. So it is not difficult to imagine the many drawbacks, such as re reduced economic growth, increased poverty, reduced innovation, increased conflict, and environmental degradation. So th th while there may be some benefits to deglobalization, in my opinion, the cost always outweighs the benefit. So uh, there are also that ongoing decoupling of U.S. from China, which is another complex issue we're dealing with. It doesn't matter if you're taking the U.S. position or you're siding with China. I think it is always worth considering alternatives that instead of completely severing economic ties. So I'm not um, painting along national lines here. Um, I have had the privilege of uh, or the misfortune of dealing with, you know, different levels of government, both in China and in North America. So it is worth noting that many politicians in North America operate within a political system that is largely focused on short-term gains and individual victory uh, rather than long-term collaboration. So to quote the great Simon Sinek, they're finite players in an infinite game. So I had the sobering experience working on an Olympic file in North America. And the exploration of whether the city or the country should host the next Winter Games just happened to coincide with both the municipal and provincial re-election. So the politicians I had to deal with on the file 
were all more concerned with winning their individual battles than serving the needs of a broader public interest and working together to achieve a greater good. So I, I think if the politicians are failing us in, on this front, maybe more and more business leaders or corporations and brands need to step up, right? Need to, to um, be a more infinite player because you know, business do operate internationally. Um, we, we have a lot of uh, business thinkers that are very balanced in this regards. Bill Gates are very good on this, right? Ray Dalio is very good on this. Elon Musk, as extreme as he may be at times, he's very balanced on these things. So I think, you know, brands, organizations, and the business leaders really need to step up. Decapitalization, well, I think to me, in the marketing sense, it reinforces the split into two different worlds between East and West. And then brings us back again to the resulting need for specificity in, in marketing. Going back again to the minimum, uh, minimum viable audience that Renault brings up. Really agree with that. And, well, we cannot ignore U.S. decoupling sentiments, which is sort of all the rage now in the news. And if we look at this from the marketing implication point of view and leave out the geopolitics I think one implication, one recent implication that I've heard that's really refreshing um, from Bryce Whitman, a professor who is teaching at NYU Shanghai. So he said that there is there is a fact that U.S. relies on China manufacturers for a lot of the more uh, affordable, more accessible, low-cost products for, for the masses. And if because of U.S. decoupling sentiments, they cut China out, there are actually no U.S. equivalents in many of the same categories in, in places. We're talking like the dollar store. We're talking like Walmart, for example. So China fills that gap for the lower income group, um, which is actually quite a large swath of U.S. Uh, shoppers. And this, this, I think this fact is sort of re repeated in the Edelman Trust Barometer. China faces massive trust deficits abroad, there's, there's this statistic that domestic trust, uh, domestic trust in companies in headquartered in China is 90%, but foreign trust in China companies is only 32%. And that's the biggest gap uh, among major economies. And so while the above is a negative example of the effects of deglobalization, um, but I actually have a positive example. Another way to look at this is when international companies say when they divest from China, or when they spin off uh, their China arms, it could be positive. In 2016, uh, KFC, uh, they had their China business run independently from the rest of the world. And we've seen it in China. It helped them a lot in terms of things like localizing the menu, making decisions uh, locally in a more agile manner, digitizing their operations, enhancing their brand, and having a long-term view of their campaigns. And over here, I, let me just shamelessly pluck our walk <laughs> awards. Uh, we run this awards for Chinese strategy. And KFC China scooped the awards first ever Grand Prix, as well as uh, best use of performance technology, as well as best long-term strategy, uh, two special awards that also accompany the Grand Prix. And one of the judges uh, from, from Unilever, yeah, commented on the work from of KFC, it's the it's called the growth of colonial key. Basically, how the brand engaged with esports gamers for more than three years, and is is 
it uses AI. It's not just slapping its logo on on the game itself. It's not just sponsoring the gamers, but it is really providing what he calls marketing as a service, M A A S for short. It is actually fulfilling the gamers' actual needs for, say, game predictions, and it's very, very seamlessly integrated into the game with the、uh, Colonel Sanders, in 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 as many <laughs> forms as you can imagine inside the game. So yeah, so that's a negative and a positive example of deglobalization and some implications on marketing, Rika. We talked a lot today about what brands should expect as China reopens. There are so many more things that we could talk about, but if I could sum up some key takeaways, I think I think one underlying theme that really came through is a need for specificity. Yes, there are trends, revenge spending. What does luxury mean? But really understanding the Chinese consumer, their specific need states, is going to become even more important than ever in this changing post-pandemic world. Thank you, Reno and Jenny, both for your time. And for everyone else, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe to the Warwick Podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And thank you for listening. <laughs>